In our last few episodes of Asian Threads, we focused on food journeys along the ancient Silk Road, but we never really arrived at Hong Kong. So for this Chinese New Year episode, I decided to talk to Margaret Xu, chef and owner of Kitchen Yin Yang, a small private farm-to-table kitchen in a three-story preservation building in Wan Chai. I also talked with Jason Ng, a local writer and blogger, about his take on the difference between Chinese New Year celebrations when he grew up here as a young boy to what it has become today. This is what we look at today on this Chinese New Year episode of Asian Threads. Asian Threads. Asian Threads. Spinning the tales of Asian communities and cultures, their personal accounts, their history, and their literature. This program is sponsored by the Wing Foundation. Serves contemporary Chinese cuisine, made using very old Chinese traditions. I never even realized that there was any such thing as a Chinese cuisine farm-to-table concept here in Hong Kong. I don't think there is any in the world, actually, <laughs> because、um, I believe in growing my own vegetables and organic stuff, and I'm used to growing that at home. So that's. Why, when I start a restaurant and put something on the plate, I like to make sure I know where the ingredients come from. So, do you grow everything at home? No, I had when I acquired this place. I acquired a farm three months ahead to grow, start growing the vegetables, and it's a proper certified organic farm in the New Territories in Yunlong. That's fantastic. So it's really full service vertical integration. Yes, it is.、Um, of course, we can't manage to grow every species in Hong Kong, depending on the season. But we try to include.、Um, I design the menu so that about eighty percent of the stuff comes from the farm. And so, when you say modern Chinese cuisine, but using old-fashioned methods, explain that. Um, we used the stone grinder. It's something I learned in the village, in the Hakka village. I used to live there and be a spy and try to learn how to cook the old ways,、um, uh, which less,、uh, allows us to make things like pastries and tofu's using the grinder. So it's a、uh, very traditional. But when you talk about modern, the presentation is、uh, not as raw and rugged as the old style. I tend to. Because I can create it from scratch, I can make it into any shape, any form I like. Do you think that the nature of the food, the cuisine, has changed?、Um, nature of the cuisine has changed, has evolved with the times, especially with Hong Kong style Chinese food.、Um, it's essentially, I think, very different from real Cantonese food.、Um, in the old days.、Um, Even I think when the British were here, when it was the colonial days, it was sort of fusion. If you talk about typical Hong Kong Chinese food, it was never. I keep arguing, it was never, never、uh, traditional. Don't tell me my food is not traditional because Hong Kong, 
was never traditional. We always had the, the, the luxury of imported ingredients, new ideas coming from abroad. Um, it's not truly fusion. There's still Chinese flavors. For example, the world-famed very basic Chinatown lemon chicken uh, was actually created in the days, I believe, after a bit of research, when um, the Chinese chefs started having foreign ingredients imported. It was very special to have things like sunkissed lemons and oranges, and they tried to use it in Chinese cooking. And nowadays, you get, like, if you go to a Chinese restaurant, you get even foie gras and salmon and slow-cooked and all sorts of stuff. I think the, 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 the best thing about Hong Kong-style Chinese food is that anything goes. It's like the Cha Tan Tang or, or, you know, the little street cafes. It's very creative. It's a mishmash, but you can make it finer. You, can, you, you, have, the, you have the freedom to make it into your own dish. How long have you had the restaurant and when did you sort of, you know, come about this idea? Um, I had a one table uh, private kitchen when I was still a designer. I used to be a creative director designer doing my own work. So I had a lot of freedom and I um, started practicing my skills that I learned in the village. I had a one table thing in the village. When you say a one table thing, what do you mean by that? It's uh, the. I was in a village house, and the dinner table can only sit one table. I mean, the room can only sit one table, and I had all my vegetables and herbs in the garden. And this was in the new territories. Yes, it was in a village, a traditional village in Yunlong, which is a basically a hakka, and it's very charming. It's right in the middle of village, but it's difficult to get to. So why did you decide to move to Hong Kong? Um, after practicing that for a while, I attracted a lot of uh, press and, and people who heard about it, are interested. I can't have enough time or anything to serve people. And I thought since I was recognized as a chef then, maybe there is a mission in there. Maybe I should start doing something for Hong Kong. And when I saw this place, which was offered to me, um, as a preservation building, I think it's very, very good if I wanted to preserve some kind of culture in, in, in food. Um, so I took it on and took on a farm and stuff. Since we're here on the eve of the Year of the Horse, I had to ask Margaret whether there were any traditional Chinese New Year dishes that she incorporated into her cuisine. Chinese New Year is actually when I started my private kitchen in the village. I learned all the stone grinding techniques and the first thing that got me very popular was the stone ground Chinese New Year cakes. All the rice paste and the sticky rice, they were ground from scratch to create the cakes, and that's a very, very old tradition. Instead of using rice processed rice flours and, and, and other sort of starches, that's how I started. And I used to make, and I still do, cakes purely ground from different grains and stuff. Do you do the grinding yourself? I used to do all of it myself because there was one table. I can't do, now I have like 30 seeds, so I don't grind it all myself. I do some of it. And where do you do that? I mean, you're not working out of Yunlong anymore. 
Um, I've moved to a workshop on the beach, actually, <laughs> which has a much bigger studio for me. Uh, and there is where all my gadgets are, all the charcoal stove, uh, the stone grinders. I have one here for backup. We use the stone grinder here to grind certain stuff if we run out. So aside from Chinese New Year cakes, what else is traditional for Chinese New Year? All the deep fried goodies, um, they're like kazons. I don't know what they're called. They're like little deep fried pastries made out of uh, rice flour and sticky rice flour. You bite into them. There's tons of peanuts and brown sugar. And it's, sometimes you have coconut in there. It's pretty good. And um, what's on the menu this year? Oh, this year I have the, I have a lobster cheese sauce Chinese New Year kazon which is like a, you know, like a little deep fried thing to go with tea. Um, And my Chinese New Year cake, stone ground. What's in the Chinese New Year cake? Radish cake. Uh, Radish is very popular amongst the Cantonese. The Chinese New Year cakes comes in uh, savory versions and sweet versions. Most savory versions are made of like radish, taro, all the tubers that are in season during winter. The sweet cakes are mainly made with sticky rice, and then put the, they put brown sugar and red dates and sometimes coconut milk. Um, it's uh, basically these two varieties, but I've developed a whole set of different, uh, more modern-looking Chinese cakes using the same methods. Is there a traditional meal that is eaten at Chinese New Year? Oh, yes. It's all very auspicious. All the meals, the festive meals during Chinese New Year or any other festival, they have very good luck connotations. It's very superstitious, you know, like you have mushrooms uh, that symbolize success, uh, success in East and West because of the pronunciation in Chinese, Dong Seng Sai Zhao. And then there is um, getting rich is very important in New Year meals. You eat um, pork knuckle, which is like uh, easy to get money with your hand. Yes, pork knuckles is a hand. So it symbolizes that money is at your reach. (laughs) Anything else? Um, Sea moss. Sea moss sounds like get rich. Everything sounds like get rich. (laughs) How How do you say it? Fat choy. Fat choy is sea moss. Yes, and it's like fat choy, which is kung hei fat choy. So, for example, what's on your degustation menu at Ying Yang this year? Um, I plan the menu so that it's not all these good luck names. I still got the festive things like the calzones and stuff, but I don't have any other, you know, like very traditional stuff. I have radish cake on the menu. Uh, which is a soft version, a very soft, uh, soupy version. I have uh, a rich ham. <laughs> it's called rich ham. It's actually originally a Sichuan dish, which is uh, Yunnan ham uh, cooked for ages with honey and served on bread. But I made it into a jelly, which is um, a very thin slice, slow-cooked ham with honey, Yunnan ham with honey, and it's set within a chicken gelatin. Now, are there any specific dishes or symbolism you have for the Year of the Horse? Um, I haven't quite yet, actually, because 
my clientele doesn't seem to be very traditional. Um, I tried to make a special zebra year cake this year, but I failed. I didn't have any time. In within a year, uh, people had good times and they had bad times, and everyone believes that when it's a new year, all the good times are going to come, and all the bad times are gone. Um, there is a lot of uh, tricky traditions, like you take a bath with pomelo leaves. Uh, pomelo leaves in a you know are supposed to wash away all your bad stuff from last year. Why pomelo leaves specifically, as opposed to any other leaves? I don't understand. As a kid, you know, uh, New Year's Eve, we will, mom will bring home some fresh pomelo leaves off a tree for us to take showers or baths, and it washes away bad luck. In fact, there is a Chinese, uh, like you know, normally we joke and we say, "Oh, it's such tough luck recently. You should go home and wash yourself with pomelo leaves." You have uh, firecrackers traditionally, which is like driving away the evil spirits. Yeah, and the dragon dance is a celebration. Big noise will drive away bad stuff and attract good stuff. away from cuisine, I decided to explore another angle to the Chinese New Year story through the lens of Jason Ng. He writes a blog called As I See It, and it's widely read here in Hong Kong. He's also a writer of two books, Hong Kong State of Mind and, more recently, No City for Slow Men. I think people who have read Hong Kong State of Mind and then compared to No City of Slow Men will see a bit of a shift in tone in that um, three years ago when I f- wrote the first book, I was sort of wide-eyed. I was sort of very curious about Hong Kong. And, and and it was a little bit more optimistic than the second book. In in the past three years, I'm sure you've noticed, uh, you know, the social and political sentiment, a sentiment of the city has changed a little bit. And, and you know, people feel there's a, a cloud hanging over us or something. And, and that comes through. Uh, when you read the second book. Naturally, you're influenced by, you know, things that happen around you. But, uh, you know, from what I understand from what you just said, it sounds like you have more of a dismal outlook, perhaps, now than you did three years ago. Am I wrong? Um, I think you're right. And I think most people would agree with that, that Hong Kong now, compared to Hong Kong three years ago, is, I mean, it's a different place. I, I I don't want to turn our you know discussion to too political discussion, but I think a lot of it has to do with our chief executive. I think that uh, you know Cy Long does sort of ch- shifts the the mood of Hong Kong a, a little bit, partly because of his background. Well, you're echoing the the thoughts of many people, so please carry on. I, I really must hear your opinion. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, I think uh, people are sensing sort of a blood transfusion process which the Chinese government is trying to um, sort of uh, implement in Hong Kong by bringing in a lot more people from mainland both as tourists and as permanent residents uh, and, and and university students see a lot more mainland students 
on campus.、Um, so I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just、uh, making a Point that a lot of people are making, which is that they are sort of seeing a much more、um, conspicuous mainland presence in Hong Kong, and that is a cause of worry for a lot of people because they feel that their core values are being somehow diluted. Do you feel that way? Um, a bit of both. I I, I think the Hong Kong culture is so strong and is so、uh, unique. That、uh, we have the ability to resist the dilution. I think you, you know more often than not, you see the influence going the other way. Like new immigrants who want to be Hong Kong people, rather than having new immigrants having the power to sort of change the values of the local people. Because usually when Um, immigrants move to a country; they try to blend in, right? So the、um, influence would go the other way. So in that sense, I'm, I'm optimistic that our core values are not being diluted. But at the same time, there are other forces at play. You know, other than the social level, there's the political system, and and all of that.、Uh, to me, is more of a cause for concern. One thing that I'm noticing in your posts is that you seem to think—correct me if I'm wrong—is that there are systemic issues, maybe across the board.、Um, you, you've highlighted them in a few different ways, as you know. You're saying politically, perhaps things. You know, most recently, your article、uh, about the Indonesian helper.、Mm. You're suggesting that there are systemic issues. Are there systemic issues across the board? Um. I think all systemic issues in Hong Kong can be traced to one fundamental problem, which is the lack of democracy. I think the fact that we are unable to pick our own chief executive to elect our own、um, legislators—I mean, we can—but there's a functional the constituencies that sort of act as the gatekeeper of、um, sort of every important political decisions in Hong Kong. So all of that at play. Is the source of our frustration. Is the reason why a lot of this、uh, systemic failures are happening is is because of the lack of accountability. So then, why is Hong Kong now no city for slow people? It sounds like you know, with a lack of、uh, democracy, it's the perfect place for slow people. <laughs> no, but I think Hong Kong, being a city that doesn't sleep, will always be the case. Every time when a foreigner comes to Hong Kong,、um, you know when a tourist passes through, the first thing that they'll notice about Hong Kong is the how fast people move, how fast people walk, and 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 I think it's fast even for people living here. So I think that would always be a feature of Hong Kong that would not change. But one of the things that has become even faster in Hong Kong is the money-grabbing culture around the tradition of laisi. Jason describes this in a chapter called "New Year Old Traditions." <laughs> to the 1.3 billion ethnic Chinese living around the globe. Roughly one fifth of the world's population, 
The Lunar New Year is the mother of all celebrations. Cantonese people take things up a few notches, and over the centuries have developed a suite of regimented festival festivities that render the twelve days of Christmas dull by comparison. In Hong Kong, the sanctuary where Cantonese customs are preserved and refined, our New Year tradition is a combination of Christmas, the customs of exchanging gifts and putting up a decorated tree in the living room, Thanksgiving, the all-important family dinner, no matter how busy or far away we are, Halloween. The get out of jail free card for children to gorge on unlimited candy, and of course the Gregorian calendar New Year, the sense of renewal that compels us to draw up a list of resolutions. The city kicks into high gear weeks before New Year's Day. Shops, restaurants, and public transport blast ear-splitting holiday tunes and turn the entire city into a sea of red and gold. At home, families plaster the walls with fai-chun, strips of paper inscribed with four-letter, four-character wishes of prosperity, good health, and domestic harmony. As soon as the clock strikes twelve on New Year's Eve, however, the whole atmosphere changes. Anticipation and excitement give way to a heightened sense of vigilance. From that point on, every phone call is answered with "konghei fa choi" instead of "hello." Brooms, mops, and vacuum cleaners are laid to rest for fear of sweeping away good fortune. Family members, big and small, are held to the highest standard of verbal discipline and are forbidden from using words like "death," "misfortune," "loss," or anything that sounds like them. Violations of the gag order are punished with the dramatic interjection "choi." Followed by public condemnation. To redeem oneself, the offender must take it all back by spitting on the floor and rephrasing what he said without the offending word. In Hong Kong, the New Year is not the New Year without the famous red packets called Lai Si. The tradition started out as married couple giving young children a trifle of pocket money as a holiday treat. As kids, my brother Dan and I would compete to see who got more money—a measure of our popularity among relatives—and spend it all on new toys as soon as the spending moratorium ended on the fifteenth day of the new year. From time to time, my mom would tell us stories about exemplary children using lycee earnings to pay household bills. Stories that Dan and I dismiss as a ploy to guilt us into surrendering our hard-earned cash. Today, Lycee has lost much of its original wholesomeness and evolved into a form of socially acceptable bribery. From doormen to secretaries and restaurant greeters, anyone in a position to make our lives easier would expect a show of appreciation to grease the wheels for the next 12 months. The more aggressive ones would come after you and bombard you with four-letter wishes until you finally get the point and surrender the money. In keeping with the season of renewal, families were losing the purse strings and stock up on all things new: new clothes, new shoes, and new appliances. Back in the 60s and 70s, when Hong Kong was still a cottage industry economy, those extra expenses were enough to create a liquidity crunch, known in the local vernacular as Nin Guan, literally the New Year trial. The financial bind was further exacerbated by the customs of Bainin, literally the New Year visit, when friends and family would go to each other's homes during the first week of the year. Personal hardship notwithstanding, 
Visitors bore generous gifts, put on their smartest clothes, and looked cheerful when they presented themselves to the hosts. Nowadays, higher disposable incomes mean few of us could wait until the New Year to buy new things, and fewer still would feel the need to parade well-groomed children once a year to create an illusion of abundance. Chinese New Year is a much less stressful event than it used to be. And that brings us to the end of this New Year episode of Asian Threads. <laughs> Wishing you all a very prosperous Year of the Horse. Asian Threads is sponsored by the Wing Foundation. <laughs>